All right. I wanted to create another microcast just to throw in between interviews. And today I'm going to do something a little bit different. Thanks and welcome back, squad. I appreciate you guys listening. And I hope so far you've been enjoying the interviews and uh, both entertaining and educational. So this episode, you know, I realized talking to friends that there was a couple of stories that are not in my book, but have also, um, you know, just kind of came up as uh, as uh, in a part of conversation, essentially, which is exactly how choir practice works, is you come in with the intention of telling one story and a friend tells you, you know, an experience and it reminds you of something else that you did. And that's kind of how this takes on a life of its own. So this microcast is just going to be uh, a couple of stories that have come up in conversation. And I'll just jump right in. The first one is um, it happened when I was a lieutenant down in Operations Division South, and uh, we get a call one day of an explosion at this um, salvage yard. And so I go over there, of course, and I have a supervisor there, you one of my sergeants, and probably at least one officer. And when we get there, sure enough, man, there was an explosion, something in the yard exploded. And what we learned is that one of the welders who was there with this cutting torch decided to cut on a cylinder, a round cylinder. And I, I guess that they had a, a rule that you don't cut on cylinders because you just don't know what it is. And um, But this guy, for some reason, I guess to put it in the same terms as, um, as Bill Hansen, this was just this dude's day to die. So... He decides uh, <laughs> He decides that he wants to cut on the cylinder. His buddies warn him not to, but they all go to work. And they're all just standing there cutting on different pieces of metal. And this thing freaking explodes. And uh, I don't know, you know, at first we didn't know, is this a, uh, was it a gas cylinder? Was it an oxygen tank? Like, what the heck? But it kind of had that vibe to it. And it blew this guy back probably about 60 to 70 feet in the air. And when he finally lands, all of his clothes are blown off and he's on fire. And his buddies described that they obviously heard the explosion because they were standing next to him. And then once the dust settled, they saw him laying over, you know, 60 to 70 feet away and he's on fire and, and they didn't know what else to do. So they ran over and started kicking and throwing dirt on him to put the fire out. And I just remember this striking me as just hilarious because it's kind of like, you know, we're on the south side and this is a scrappy metal yard and here's these guys cutting away on this metal. And I just kept thinking to myself, the only thing that they could have done that would have been more ghetto would have been to start urinating on him. I mean, that, I, that really would have been the only other thing that I could think of that would have just been <clears throat> a cherry on top. But they throw dirt on this dude and they put him out. And he's already dead. I mean, they called 911 and paramedics showed up. But what they didn't realize at first when he hit the ground and was on fire is that when the cylinder exploded, it blew a, a piece of metal probably about the size of a baseball. And the, the metal itself was probably about a quarter inch thick. So it was heavy steel. I mean, it was a, it was a heavy, heavy thing. It blew this baseball-sized piece of steel right into the center of his chest, right in his solar plexus where you would you know, put your hands to do chest compressions during CPR. And that piece of metal went through and through. It went in the front and out the back. 
And they didn't know that. So this guy, he was probably instantly dead. But yeah, blew his clothes completely off. He's laying there naked. He's on fire. They're kicking dirt on him. And so, you know, of course, we go down there and we get a glimpse of this thing. And it looks like it looks like a bomb, like a legit military bomb. So we back out. We call our uh, bomb team, the EOD team, and they come out straight up, uh, you know, hurt locker style with the with a big old bomb suit on. And they go waddling down into this metal yard and they look at it. And sure enough, somehow there is a legitimate military bomb in there and it looks like it's only partially exploded. Like it didn't completely ignite, explode, detonate, whatever. So they back up and they call out to the air force base here in Tucson air force base sends out their bomb techs. And it was just such a stark contrast, man. These guys are like, you know, they're 18, 19 year old looking kids. And he's got on his camo, you know, BDU pants, his olive green shirt. And he had on this little like vest harness kind of thing that was holding his radio, almost like his little walkie talkie. And uh, he goes walking in there. You know, our guys were all hurt lockered out and this guy's in his BDUs and a t-shirt. And he goes walking down there and comes back. He's like, yep, that's a bomb. So at that point, we made arrangements. We got this huge dump truck to come over filled with sand. They loaded this bomb into the dump truck. And in the meantime, I worked on getting our motorcycle cops to come over. And essentially what they described to us is that, you know, once we leave here, this thing's going to be pretty unstable because it is partially detonated, but it didn't completely explode. So as soon as we leave this scrapyard, we need to go from here to the bomb range on the base without stopping. No stopping at red lights, no nothing. We just need to keep moving in case this thing decides to go off. It doesn't go off in a residential area or a business area. So yeah, man, the motor units showed up and they gave a police escort to this dump truck and they took it out and ended up dumping it uh, or exploding it, I guess, out on the, the bomb range on the base. But what we found out later is I guess the the Air Force Base had um, a pretty large contract with with the military base, this scrapyard did, and uh, uh, somehow this bomb got put in with the rest of their scrap and taken to the scrapyard. And then unfortunately for this worker, he decided to break the rules on this day and decided to cut on this what he thought was an oxygen tank or some kind of a gas tank. And he ended up killing himself. So that was that was one story. I was talking to a buddy of mine who's a welder, and uh, and it reminded me of of this story. And I said, "Oh man, I'm gonna have to talk about that one on the podcast because it's just it's unusual. It didn't make it into my book. It was you know pretty extraordinary and just crazy, just crazy circumstances." So um, here's another good one. You know, this was one that. Uh, I don't, why did this one come up? Oh, you know what? I was at the gym the other day and I ran into a gentleman who has my book and he was reading the story about when I was in the bicycle unit and uh, we ended up catching this guy that was wanted for aggravated assault. And when we swooped in on him, he just dropped a load in his shorts. And uh, then of course, throughout the investigation, we started asking him, you know, what's your name? What's your date of birth? Where are you from? And he told us, told us he was from Winslow, Arizona. So, being the idiots that we are, and trying to trying to make a, a you know situation a little funnier because that's just what we did, just clowning around. 
we started singing that Eagle song, standing on a corner in Winslow, Arizona, while this poor guy's sitting on the curb, you know, in handcuffs with a load in his pants. So <laughs> he's telling me, you know, my friend is telling me that he went back and reread the story. And it actually reminded me of another situation where, you know, I was in charge of the force unit and we would just wander the whole city, you know, city, you know, helping with call load and uh, trying to catch bad guys. And one night in particular, we were, we joined in with, I want to say operations division West, trying to find a stolen car or somebody that was running from them, something like that. And the helicopter was overhead, our police helicopter, and it's circling, it's circling and Ultimately, I think we found the car, we found the bad guy, whatever it was. And then I remember the pilot from the air unit comes up on the radio and he says, Hey man, um, now that we've got this guy, can you guys go check something for us? And of course I'm like, yeah, what, you know, what do you need? And he says, well, when we were flying in our orbits, helping you guys on the ground, someone popped out of a house, you know, like a block over and was shining a laser light at the helicopter, which is a huge no, no, it's a felony. You can blind the pilot. You can make them crash. It's it's a dangerous situation. So I know I was there. I know Anthony Flores was there. And I can't remember who else. But there was about three or four of us, you know, officers there. And they gave us the address. And they gave us a, a general description. But you got to remember, they are 500 feet above the ground. And it's nighttime, and all the streetlights in Tucson are kind of like an orange, you know, got an orange tinge to them. So we go over there, and they thought the, the, the subject who was pointing the laser light at them was probably in his 30s. But we get there, we knock on the door, and this couple comes to the door, and the gentleman's a white guy, and he's probably 50s, early 60s, and he has a little, um, his little wife. She's this little, you know, short little uh, Asian lady. And so we asked them, you know, is there anybody else here? No. Okay. Uh, you guys don't have a, a, an adult child or do you mind if we come take a look, you know? And they're like, no, go ahead, man. And there was nobody else there. So we finally explained to them, this is why we're here. You know, the helicopter was flying overhead. They said someone, you know, in this house pointed a laser light at the helicopter and I think we even brought the guy out to the front yard so the air unit could look at him. And they were still flying overhead, you know, 500 feet. And as soon as we bring him out, the pilot's like, that's him. That's the guy that we saw pointing the light at us. And we're like, oh, okay. So we told the guy, this is why we're here, bro. You know, they're saying that you pointed a laser light at them while they were flying overhead. And the guy's like, yeah, I did, man. They pissed me off. I'm trying to watch a TV show and I can't hear anything because they're flying over the top of my house. So we look at each other like, ah, oh, okay, and told him, turn around, put your hands uh, behind your back, and start to put handcuffs on him. And right then his wife says, is he going to jail? And we're like, uh, yeah, that's a felony. And she just goes, oh, shit. And then she just lets out this long, whistling, high-pitched fart. You know, and so we're standing there and she just, she's like, oh shit. You know, there's a long old thing, but she's just standing there dead cold, like, like it's not happening. And I remember Tony Flores and I look at each other and we're just like, it's just one of those surreal moments. You're like, is that, is this really happening? 
I don't know. She might have dropped a load in her shorts as well. I really don't know. But it was just the realization that her husband was getting booked to the jail for pointing a laser light. It was just hilarious, you know. And again, you know, <laughs> this reminds me of another story. There was another officer that I used to know. And she said that when she was dealing with people who said they were crazy, she told me this. She says, you know how to tell if someone's really, truly crazy? And I was like, no, how? And he says, she says, while you're talking to them, you just fart right in front of them. And if they don't react and they don't respond, then they're crazy. But if they stop what they're doing and they ask you if you just farted, then you know that they're not crazy. <laughs> that was That was her test. Which is just stupid, but in any case, I mean, it's just funny. And again, it's just some of the things that cops do uh, <laughs> when they're working. Um, I had another buddy of mine. He used to say that the guilty sleep, and it sounds kind of crazy. And uh, uh, Billy, you're going to have to come on this show so you can share it because you're a clown and you're going to have to share some of your stories. But uh, it, it was true. You know, if you or I or anybody who who's not a criminal got arrested. If the cops just showed up at your house and said that you're under arrest and put handcuffs in, on you, you'd probably be freaking out. You know what I mean? Like, what are you doing? Why am I under arrest? You need to explain this to me. I, I didn't do anything wrong. You know, you'd be freaking out. And we would arrest some of these notorious and just prolific criminals, especially like the drug users, you know, who would stay up for days on end pretty much doing any and everything they can to support their habit, sleeping in just risky places, you know, that kind of stuff. So you'd catch somebody red-handed and you'd take them down to the station so that you could, you know, test their dope, get your report written, whatever you're going to do before you take them to the jail. And almost as soon as you put the handcuffs on them and put them in your car, they were out. They'd just fall asleep, like deep sleep. Like you couldn't wake them up sometimes. And... I would imagine the true reason is because it's the first time that they can honestly go to sleep. They know they're not going to get any more drugs. They know that there's nothing else that they can do to get more drugs, burglarize, you know, steal, rob, whatever. But they also know that they're safe and that nobody's going to try and jack them, you know, whatever. Nobody's going to try and rob them, hurt them, steal their stuff, whatever. And these people would go out and they would just be dead asleep. And so my buddy Billy used to always say the guilty sleep. And it's almost 99.9% of the time it was true. Almost every single freaking time. So talking about Tony Flores, and here's and again, I want to have Tony on too, because I'm sure he's got a whole bunch of cool stories that uh, he could tell as well. I got to reach out to him. But uh, we're in the force unit. We're kind of over on that west side of town. And somehow he gets a call for like a check welfare, a medical call. And it's supposed to be someone who is on the ground or they're just, they're down by a bus stop. And so I want to say that when he gets there, the subject is having a seizure or just had a seizure or something like that. So Tony goes running up there and he's like, Hey man, are you okay? And he's like, yeah, I had a seizure. You know, I'm not feeling well. And Tony's like, all right, well, let me check you out make sure you don't have any injuries because it's nighttime. And Tony brings up his flashlight and he turns it on. And as he's bringing it up towards the guy's face, the guy's like, no, 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 not the lights. And then and just collapses to the ground and starts having another seizure because I guess the flashing lights are one of the things that causes this guy's seizure. So the guy goes back down again. 
You know, so Tony feels awful because, you know, this poor guy, he's there to help him, but he just induced another seizure and Tony's calling for paramedics or the paramedics were already on their way, whatever. So the guy, you know, Tony's just got him there and he's trying to comfort him. He's like, hey man, it's going to be okay. The paramedics are on their way. They're going to come check you out. You know, you're going to be fine, whatever. And the guy's just kind of laying there, chilling, they're waiting. And sure enough, man, here comes the ambulance with red and blue lights and flashing lights on. And right when they turn the corner and the sirens going, the guy's like, and he just goes down again and starts having another seizure. So like three back to back to back uh, while Tony's there with him. And it was just the way he described it, you know, this poor guy, man, you just, you're there to help him. And then you're almost doing more harm uh, by trying to help him. So just craziness and just some of the stuff that you would run into on a pretty regular basis that you know, otherwise is pretty unusual, but it's almost a daily occurrence, you know, uh, as a paramedic, as a police officer, as a firefighter, that kind of stuff. And so I guess, uh, this last story I'll wrap up with is, uh, you know, when I was in the bicycle unit, we got tasked with all kinds of side responsibilities and jobs to do. And, uh, I remember one day we were told to go and do a warrant roundup and we were given a list of names and people with the offenses, you know, the warrants, the criminal charges that they were wanted for and that kind of stuff. And I don't remember how many people we ended up rounding up, but I remember there was one guy in particular that, uh, he was just kind of sneaky, like, if we, you know, went to talk to him, he would stay in his house. He wouldn't open the door, you know, just kind of a sneaky dude. And, you know, as police officers in Arizona, if I show up at your house and I know that you have a warrant for your arrest, if it's a felony warrant, that's one thing, but I'm still probably going to need a search warrant to actually go into your home and, and take you out. Uh, if it's a misdemeanor warrant, which I believe that that's what this was for this guy, um, you really can't reach into his house, go into his house, grab him, take him out, whatever. So I remember we were riding our bikes from the station, which is, you know, our station was at 22nd and Alvernon. And we were going to go and try and scoop this dude up over by the University of Arizona. And we go down there and we find his house. And it's kind of like this shabby duplex kind of like student housing, old home, probably built in the forties or fifties. And when we get there, we are just trying to verify that that really is the right place. So we're running the license plates out in the parking lot. And one of the cars out there comes back to the guy we're looking for. So then right there on the fly, man, we just try to, we came up with the idea. We're like, you know what we're going to do? Let's go tell him that his car is about to get towed and see if he'll come out to check it. You know, we'll just tell him, hey, man, there's a car out here and it's about to get towed. We think it's yours. Can you come and verify it? And so we're like, okay, yeah, let's see if he falls for it, man. So we go up and we knock on the door. The dude answers the door. And we're like, hey, man, how you doing? We're the, you know, bike police. <laughs> and there's a couple of cars in the parking lot right here that are about to get towed. Uh, do you have a red car? We think it might be yours. Can you come out and just verify that that's your car? So he says, yeah, hold on a second. And he throws some shoes on. I don't even think he put a shirt on. I think he's wearing jeans. And he comes out and he goes towards the parking lot. And before he can even get to the parking lot, 
we put handcuffs in him. We told him, dude, your car's not being towed. You're under arrest. And he's like, oh, man. I remember he was all mad. And it was just a ruse. You know, it was just he was one of many on our list that we were trying to pick up. And uh, he was difficult. And we we managed to uh, outfox him that time. We we were playing chess. He was playing checkers, I guess. <laughs> so um, that's really it. That's it for this one. You know, uh, the, I will say one more thing. You know, I was at the gym when I was telling you, I was talking to my buddy Jose, and he was asking me about my book. But there's another guy that goes to the gym, and I hope he hears this, but I call him Jim from the gym. And this guy is 82, 83 years old. He's just an older gentleman, super nice. His son is a cop out in California. And this guy shows up on the regular, and he just works his way through all the machines. He's a really fit dude for his age, you know, and a uh, super nice guy. And through our conversations, I told him about my book. He ended up buying it, checking it out, and then sending it to his son out in California. And I just hadn't seen Jim in a while, and I was uh, trying to keep an eye open for him. And I knew that his daughter went to the gym, and I just saw her, you know, the other day. And I said, hey, where's your pops? You know, when he's com- when is he coming back to the gym? And she told me that he found out that he has cancer and that he's not doing well. And so I told her about the podcast and I told, cause he, I, he knew about it and he kept asking me, Hey, when are you going to get that thing going? How's it going? How's the podcast going? And just me being a slug and dragging my feet and, and getting things set up. Uh, it didn't work out right. But ultimately uh, I wanted to tell him that the podcast was coming out, you know, October 27th of this year and um of 2021 and i wanted him to know so that he could listen to it and so when she told me that he found out he had cancer and he just wasn't doing well and he wasn't feeling well enough to come to the gym you know i just it hit me harder than i expected but i told her about the podcast i provided the heard the information and she was just so grateful uh because she said it was going to give her father something to look forward to um to listen to So um, this episode is dedicated to Jim. Jim from the gym. We're sorry, the number you have dialed is not in service at this time.